This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello there, great to have you along. And as you know, there has been plenty of rain about some parts of the wheat belt this season. And with harvest underway, that's increasing the chances of you getting the header bogged. I've done most of the bad spots around this farm that I thought I might come unstuck in and um, yeah, this one snuck up on me. Yeah, surprise. And the wool industry is looking at doing a lot more processing right here in Australia. We know that sustainability and supply chain transparency are of increasing importance to consumers of all agri-products and most certainly wool. So I think what we would be able to offer downstream consumers is assurance that the product they're receiving is 100% Australian wool. And we'd also be able to offer assurances around some of the credentials of perhaps some processing innovation that could be adopted using renewable energy, decreased water consumption and that sort of thing would all add to the story of sustainability that is Australian wool. You'll hear more about that, all the details with Wool Producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes just before news headlines at half past 12 today. It is six past 12 and, well, the wool industry is not the only industry thinking about downstream processing Top-end cotton growers are saying this season has highlighted why Western Australia and the Northern Territory desperately need processing gins. As Steph Sinclair explains, a huge crop has been accompanied by all sorts of supply chain problems. If you visited some farms in the north of Australia today, you'd find hundreds of bales of valuable cotton that was harvested a couple of months ago. The farmers don't want it on farm, but they can't get it to the nearest cotton gins that are thousands of kilometres away. Pete Johnson runs Left Field Solutions, a brokerage company that works with northern growers and east coast processors. He says a record cotton crop was planted in the expanding Ord Valley and Northern Territory growing regions and there are all sorts of reasons why it's been so hard getting that cotton to the gins. It's been a long haul and very difficult this season moving cotton modules from the north down to the east coast we've got the bulk of it's probably being ginned at Dalby and southern Queensland also some going further south to the Riverina in southern New South Wales it's a long way it's well over 3,000 k's to Dalby so you've got the distance alone but just access to trucks this year has been a nightmare and that's you know there's a range of factors behind that. Flooding on the east coast has also had a ripple effect on the northern cotton supply chain. Where I am, I'm, I'm based in Toowoomba in, in southern Queensland. I do a lot of work through Queensland and northern New South Wales and it's been a debacle. You know, we've had challenges getting modules out of fields, challenges getting just getting stuff to gin and that's before you take into account the impacts on grain logistics as well. We're just trucks getting stuck in different spots. It's been the most difficult season I can remember. And like everyone else, the cotton industry has been struggling to find skilled staff, particularly for the transport side of things. The NT Road Transport Association's Louise Bellato says, unfortunately, some fleets just can't run at full capacity because there's not enough drivers. Everyone's doing more with less. The road transport industry has really felt it hard. We stood up because all freight was essential through COVID incredibly well. And, you know, the road transport industry was exceptional during that period. 
But like every industry, we're facing massive workforce shortages. And overall, across every jurisdiction, we're looking at strategies to try to recruit. And of course, alongside a huge jump in demand for trucks, you've also got rising fuel prices pushing up freight costs. Ord Valley cotton farmer Jim Engelke says industry's really feeling it. Yeah, certainly uh, freight has jumped, but uh, it's alongside everything else that's uh, gone up and fertiliser being, and I think anyone in uh, agriculture will know only too well that uh, the price of fertiliser has jumped an awful lot uh, in the last 12 to 18 months. So look, the combined effect of all those price lifts across the board certainly squeezing uh, squeezing margins and particularly in a region like here where you're so reliant, so heavily reliant on freight to get things in and out. Yeah, you can see your margins tighten up very quickly. And as the wet season approaches in the north, there are concerns cotton left sitting on farm could get wet and that could cost growers money as well. Clearly that doesn't do it any good if it gets too wet and you, do, you can get some downgrades on the basis of that. The ideal scenario would be you pick it, uh, you put it on a truck and you send it east. Clearly that's not what we've got so we make uh, the best of what we've got uh, and we get it across there when we can. But there's light at the end of the tunnel for cotton growers in the Northern Territory and WA. A Catherine Cotton Gin should be up and running next year and money has just been locked in for a processing facility in the Kimberley's Ord Valley. Definitely takes out that risk about getting it to a uh, facility. So we know for sure that we can get the modules into a cotton gin once we have one here. Uh, We're not faced with that freight problem. In terms of all the other costs, it won't bring them down, but, you know, we we certainly at least uh, get around the the freight and the bottleneck of the freight issue, which restricts our production capacity in the Ord anyway. Ord Valley farmer Jim Engelke ending that report from Steph Sinclair. And you can read more online. Steph's just got the story up for you now. Just search ABC Kimberley and Cotton and you can read through Steph's story. 11 past 12 and really taking a look at gin uh, processing or uh, processing gins for the cotton industry there. But as I mentioned a moment ago, just before news headlines, talking about more processing being done here as far as wool goes into the future. There's been a new report just looking into that and the opportunities. What would that involve? And on the text, Ron likes the idea of that. Processing wool back in Australia, the best news all year. I might buy a new jumper or two, you ripper. Perhaps Twiggy could do the same with iron ore, says Ron. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. if you'd like to text through and have your say. It is 12 past 12. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. And here's something it would be great to get your thoughts on too because, as you might have heard in the news today, WA's Premier is saying that major mining companies will be contributing to a new multi-million dollar fund which will be used to help pay for projects that don't get the attention they deserve. The $750 million Community Investment Fund is going to provide money for a whole range of different initiatives, but there are a couple that have been highlighted at this point. There's the upgrade to the Perth Concert Hall and works at the Perth Zoo. But I want you to have a think about what this money might be spent on in rural and regional parts of Western Australia. What is it? How much would it cost? Where should some of this money go? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four to text through. 
and uh, put forward your suggestion. The Premier, Mark McGowan, says this idea of the fund and getting the mining companies to contribute to it has been floating around for some time. Well, I think there's lots of uh, people have thought that we should try to secure this sort of arrangement over time. And uh, I've had various people from various walks of life, including people in business, suggest it to me. I decided to follow up and I made contact with a range of the major players in Western Australia and said, we'll set up a vehicle uh, that they can contribute to some of these major legacy projects for the state, considering the very good times we've had over the course of the last few years and the very strong uh, results that they've achieved. And uh, they they were very agreeable, so I'm very pleased. So you literally picked up the phone and asked for money? <laughs> Well, we set up the vehicle, um, which is the fund, if you like, and the governance around it and all those sorts of things. And then I just said to uh, various of them when I had meetings with them, would you like to contribute to this? There's no strings attached. It's voluntary. You can contribute and give something back to the state in addition to what they already do, but give something back to the state to support some of those legacy projects like the Aboriginal Cultural Centre and Pursue Master Plan and remote Aboriginal communities and the Perth Concert Hall and Telethon, initiatives like that. You said there's no strings attached. Do they get anything in return? Well, they may well get uh, a plaque in some of the uh, buildings if they contribute to those. So that might, that might be something that happens. Uh, but um, I think uh, it's just a good way of getting some additional support for important projects around Western Australia, reducing the burden on the taxpayer and making sure that we can fund some of those very important things that seem to always never get the attention they deserve. For example, the uh, you know the Perth Concert Hall, it's in dire need of some work and uh, this will help us fund that. The Perth Zoo, which is a wonderful, wonderful place, we put $40 million in, but ordinarily in government what you find is you know your, your basics of health, police, schools, uh, training, roads, rail, electricity, all those sort of things suck in most of your effort. Um, this allows us to fund some of those very important legacy things that will make a huge difference to the state for decades to come. You could also argue that if these companies paid more in tax, uh, like a super profits tax or a, or a, a levy of some sort, then you would be able to fund these legacy projects without without asking for money in this way. We got to also remember that's uh, that's not something with, that we will be doing. But secondly, um, that get, get, that all gets equalised to the other states. So this is a way of Western Australia receiving some support, the state that provides the huge bulk of the revenue to these businesses, support for some of those important legacy projects. But you could renegotiate state agreements, couldn't you? They're, they're contracts, so they're, if they are renegotiated, which they are from time to time, it's done by agreement. But uh, Nadia, this is a very good day. It's a very exciting initiative. It's going to mean we're already at $750 million. I'm very Hopeful uh, that we'll get to significantly more than that, uh, certainly way above a billion, I would be hoping. And some of those very important projects, for instance, the Aboriginal Cultural Centre, situated on the Durbel Yerrigan, which will be uh, finished, we hope, by 2028, uh, will be a iconic, world-class uh, exhibition of Indigenous culture. So who decides what is funded and how much money each project gets, or has that already been sorted out? So there's a governor's board. Um, it'll be independently chaired. It'll have the Chamber of Minerals and Energy on it and representatives from Treasury and Department of Premier and Cabinet and so forth. So it'll have all the appropriate governance in place. Companies will be able to say which projects they'd like their uh, support to go to. Um, if they want to nominate others, particularly 
some of those sort of iconic regional projects that might be in the area in which they operate, uh, that would be uh, totally acceptable as long as it's sort of, sort of an appropriate project, if you like. So we're going to write to, or I'm going to write to another 30 or so businesses uh, today uh, to seek their support for it. So as I said, I'm hopeful we'll get way above a billion dollars, maybe up to the 1.5 or, uh, or even higher uh, for these uh, projects around the state. That's an enormous amount of money, but you've got to remember some of these projects are very expensive as well. So that's why this support will go a long way towards those projects. The Premier, Mark McGowan, speaking to Nadia Mitsopoulos. 17 past 12. Well, some of the um, projects right at the top of the list, as you can hear, the Perth Concert Hall and also the Perth Zoo are two that are right up there. Looks like they'll get some money. But what else should be it be spent on this big pool of money outside the metro area in rural and regional parts of Western Australia? What do you think? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. This from Tony and Geraldton. Uh, what a comedian you are, Belinda. A Labor government spending money outside of the city. Also this from Stuart. So the mining industry who contributes to this fund are still getting away with their tax commitments. Once again, our government is weak, says Stuart. And a lot of you think it should be spent on infrastructure in rural and regional parts. Neville is keen on the mine cash being spent on Tier 3 rail lines. Uh, Peter, also a fan of getting the money spent on the Tier 3 rail line, will make regional roads safer, last longer, get grain to port more efficiently. Labor wanted it protected when in opposition. It has to be an infrastructure priority unless they don't like regional WA as much as they seem to like the Perth Concert Hall and the zoo. Nick's putting in a vote for fixing the roads. Paul says extra money should be spent building railway lines, create jobs and save the roads. And then this... Just up the resource taxes and sort out regional infrastructure. Not sure the zoo and the concert hall cut the mustard. Zero eight double four eight nine double two six zero four. If you've got a suggestion for how some of that money might be spent, and there is a lot of money going around this community investment fund. CEO of Iron Ore at Rio Tinto, Simon Trot, says Rio has already put two hundred and fifty million dollars on the table. I think it's a great example of industry and government uh, working together to progress projects that will touch the lives of generations of West Australians. What do you get in return? Uh, we get nothing in, in return. I guess what we try to do wherever, wherever we operate is really build thriving communities and that's the intent of this initiative. Is your understanding that this is a one-off or do you expect that in another three or four years when this money is used up that you would then be asked to contribute again? I think there's a number of projects on the drawing board for the state government. Some of those are, are well progressed, some of those are in earlier stages and so those funds will flow over time and the commitment today is really around those specific funds rather than an ongoing commitment. And Simon, so, mean, there may be some people listening that would argue, well, why don't you just pay more tax at mining companies like Rio who make billions and billions of dollars? Would you be better off just paying a little bit more tax to be able to fund these sort of projects? That would be a fairer way of doing this. Rio's been part of the WA community for 50 years uh, and I think through that time we've got a really proud history of working together with governments, working together with other stakeholders to progress projects and make sure that uh, all West Australians get benefits from the resources industry. And I think this is another example of that. Or you could just pay more tax. Uh, we certainly do pay considerable amounts of, of tax, as we should. Uh, we certainly pay royalties, as we should. 
and, and this is an opportunity for us to step up with other industry partners to really ensure that we're progressing the projects that West Australians want to see. Simon Trott from Rio Tinto with Nadia Mitsopoulos. 21 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And in other resources news today, the state government has announced an extension of the potash industry royalty rebate scheme. The scheme provides a non-repayable 50% rebate on royalties paid for two years to companies that make first sulphate of potash, SOP, sales before the end of 2027. Bill Johnston is the Minister for Mines and Petroleum. Minister, why an extension to this scheme? Well, we've been talking to the industry about providing assistance. We've provided a range of assistance already and we've just decided that uh, we can uh, accommodate their needs in this way. Why is it important to assist the industry in this way? We understand the fact that the uh, potash projects take longer to get into production than a traditional mining project, so we want to provide some assistance in those early, more costly years for the projects so that uh, they, they can be assisted to uh, get into full production. What is the extent of the industry here in WA today in terms of the number of companies involved at the different locations and sort of their progress as far as getting to the production stage? Yeah, so the, it's been slower than we would we would have liked. There are two projects that are more advanced, the one in production at the moment and one uh, well under construction, and then there's a range of others that are um, uh, in earlier stages of development. And the locations, where is it mainly centred? So generally they're, they're in quite remote parts of the state, and that's actually one of the attractions for the government because there's already uh, local people there, Aboriginal people, that don't often have employment opportunities. So this is a, a real chance to create local employment uh, opportunities in these remote parts of the state. So uh, generally speaking, they'll be um, around... Uh, uh, dry lakes um, in uh, regional Western Australia. However, uh, the BCI project is actually on the coast and uses seawater. Okay, so in terms of the royalties the industry is required to pay, can you give us an idea of that and sort of the rebate they're, they're getting in return, obviously half of what the royalty is? Yeah, so the, we, we've extensively examined the royalty rate and we know this is, disappoints the industry, but we uh, believe that the appropriate level is 5%. This is quite a high-value product, so that's the that's the royalty rate. We've looked at that a number of occasions, and we continue to believe that five percent is appropriate. But as I say, we understand the higher costs of the startup phase, and so for the first two years of a project, there's a, a non-repayable fifty percent rebate. And that five percent is that on the value or the amount of exports? How does that work? Yeah, so it's it's like all uh, mineral royalties in Western Australia. It's an ad valorem, that is to say it's applied to the uh, the volume times the price. Yeah, okay. And do you think that's going to be enough to sort of um, motivate industry or maybe the ones already in the industry but other players maybe to have a look at possibilities? Well, look, this is not the only assistance we've provided. We have a specific mine tenement rental rate for the minerals and brine industry, which is only $6 a hectare compared to $24 a hectare for most projects. And we also have specific rates in the Mining Rehabilitation Fund to uh, recognise the long life of these projects. So those are other ways that we've been assisting as well. In addition to that, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on infrastructure to support these projects as well. And that's enough to sort of get the industry moving here in this state? 
Well, our view is that it's enough to get the industry moving. I mean, we can't control the underlying economics of these projects and we do expect the companies to take responsibility for their project developments, but we believe that we've uh, done what's needed to get the industry operating. And why are you so keen to, uh, you know, get it up and running here in this state? Well, obviously, uh, SOP or or, or, um, sulphate of uh, potassium is is not something we currently produce here in Western Australia. It's an important fertiliser that's used around the world. Uh, all these projects that are currently in development are export projects and it'll mean that we get uh, new high-value exports. And over time, it may actually also allow Western Australia's uh, agricultural industry to use SOP as well. How long does the rebate scheme stay in place so it's it's for the first two years of operation and the scheme is in pl- in place till 2027. So for projects that commence prior to 2027, they'll get the, uh, the two-year rebate. Really good to talk to you. Thank you. No worries. Thank you for your interest. Minister for Mines and Petroleum, Bill Johnston, just talking about that scheme. Uh, the state government announcing the extension of the potash industry royalty rebate scheme and that provides a non-repayable 50% rebate on the royalties paid for two years to companies that make first sulphate of potash SOP sales before the end of 2027. And Nathan on the text thinks it should have gone a little bit further regarding SOP. How about one condition supplied for local agricultural use only, not shipped internationally, chasing the dollar? That text, zero double four eight. Nine double two six zero four, and another suggestion for the community investment fund currently sitting at seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Mining companies contributing to that and going into special projects like the zoo, like the Perth Concert Hall, and a suggestion for some cash to be injected into the Carnamar Big Tractor Project could do with a little bit of cash. Apparently, what's your idea? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. Text through and have your say. News headlines not far away. Just before that, our three point six billion dollar wool industry is looking at doing a lot more processing right here in Australia. Maybe even up to fifty percent. At the moment, most Australian wool is shipped to China for processing. But Wool Producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes says the past few years have shown how vulnerable industry is being so reliant on one country. We started to become aware of a number of risks to which our industry was exposed through being very reliant on exports for most of our product leaving the country in a greasy form. And they were risks that could come about from um, the likes of an emergency animal disease, such as, foot, such as foot and mouth disease, or disruptions to market access, either through the imposition of tariffs or quotas or non-tariff barriers. We were also talking a lot about freight costs in 2020 as well, Adam. Did the industry have to cope with a, quite a, a big increase in the freight bill? Yeah, absolutely. And also one of the challenges that we faced as well, Joe, was the freight availability, where a lot of vessels were either becoming consolidated and dropping off some key export ports or um, shipping slots were shipping by up to six or eight weeks. And the flow-on impact has been that there's been a significant extension of the number of days to customer that we're seeing of Australian wool to get to um, further downstream consumers or to the point of retail. If we look at that supply chain now, what happens to our wool? We shear it, it goes into the bale, it goes onto a ship. Then what happens to it? 
Yeah, so currently, Joe, we've got processing capacity in Australia to scour or carbonise about 5% of the wool that we produce. The remainder of that wool is exported in a greasy form and around about 80% of the wool that we produce goes to China for scouring and carbonising and further on processing. The remainder goes to a mix of other markets, um, including primarily European markets and India. And that's where we saw some, I guess, risk mitigation in terms of our exposure to some of those trade barriers and freight disruptions um, through undertaking early stage processing here. So effectively, around about 50 to 60% of the wool that's in a pack that's exported in the greasy form isn't actually usable wool in the textile sense. It's made up of grease or lanolin, vegetable matter and soil. So there's some instant freight efficiencies if we can undertake scouring and carbonisation here. Probably just as well further to that, Joe, we've seen uh, two instances in the last three or four years where our wool-producing colleagues in South Africa have experienced a fairly significant disruption to their market access as a result of foot mouth disease incursions. Sure. So you're looking at potentially halving the amount that you'd be sending in freight, but also guaranteeing that you could still send it even if there was an FMD incursion in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So the the scouring process actually mitigates the risk of some um, emergency animal diseases like foot and mouth disease. So instantly, if we had capacity to process more, somewhere upwards of 5% of the wool that we currently produce, which is where we currently sit, then our risk exposure would reduce in a proportionate manner. This report looks at the numbers in a very much a preliminary setting. You need to do more, a deeper dive, if you like, into the numbers. But when you think about the cost of labour in Australia versus the cost of labour in a country like China, does it stack up to do that early processing, that scouring and carding and combing in Australia when when you can compare to the, the cost of doing that overseas? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And probably one thing to make listeners aware of is that This report that we've recently released is part one of what was initially proposed to government as a two-stage process. And effectively, if we think of this as being the the macroeconomic analysis, so we've looked at does it stack up commercially? Is it commercially competitive? And what are the benefits beyond just the direct benefits to the wool industry in terms of jobs creation and increase to GDP? As part of this analysis, we've actually looked at independently the wet early stage processes, so that's the scouring and carbonising, and then the dry early stage processes, so the carding and combing. And what we've found is that the higher labour costs in Australia are largely offset with the freight efficiencies that we achieve through, as we discussed before, exporting less um, undesirable or less usable product. But when we start to get onto the dry processing, we actually see that we're perhaps on direct commercial terms not quite as competitive as some of those lower cost of labour markets. So perhaps what we're looking at doing in the next phase is pursuing what an altered supply chain could look where perhaps scouring and carbonising is decoupled from top making um, and top making is actually attached to spinning operations. Under this system, would you be looking at doing all of our wool in Australia or would you still be sending some unprocessed wool to China? What sort of volumes have you been looking at? So we looked at processing up to 50% of the wool that we produce as part of this feasibility study. And I guess part of the reason for that being that we looked at what happens with our wool when it's exported and actually um, 50% of the wool that we 
export to China is retained and consumed within the country through their vertically integrated models. And the remainder is processed to various stages along the wall supply chain and exported to third countries. So as a starting point, we looked at varying options from increasing a moderate increase to a a high level increase up to 50% of the wool that we produce and what impact that might have in terms of risk mitigation to our industry. Do you see any potential for wool that's been processed in Australia to attract some sort of price premium? I imagine it increases the traceability of that wool, that kind of thing. Is there opportunity there? We know that sustainability and supply chain transparency are of increasing importance to consumers of all agri-products and most certainly wool. So I think what we would be able to offer downstream consumers is assurance that the product they're receiving is 100% Australian wool. And we'd also be able to offer assurances around um, some of the credentials of perhaps um, some processing innovation that could be adopted using renewable energy, decreased water consumption and that sort of thing would all add to the story of sustainability that is Australian wool. Adam Dawes talking to Joe Prendergast about a recent report commissioned by Wool Producers Australia. It was done by Deloitte Access Economics and it was looking into the viability of early stage processing of up to half the nation's clip right here in Australia. The story is online right now. Just search ABC Rural Wool and China to read through Joe's story. ABC Rural Wool China for the online story. It is 26 to 1 and Herlin Kaur is here. What's in the headlines, Helen? Good afternoon. Making news today, the cost of electric vehicles will fall by thousands of dollars under a deal between the Albanese government and key crossbenchers. The electric car discount policy was a Labor election promise and the legislation aims to make an EV up to $2,000 cheaper for Australians and $9,000 for employers who run fleets. It will do that by exempting eligible low emissions vehicles from import charges and fringe benefits tax. An Aboriginal cultural centre, a Perth Zoo redevelopment and a remote Aboriginal communities program will be among the first projects to benefit from a new resources industry fund. Major mining and oil and gas companies are contributing $700 million for what the WA government describes as iconic infrastructure projects. And in cricket, the Perth Scorchers have terminated the Big Bash contract of English import Laurie Evans, who's tested positive for a banned substance. The club says it's disappointed to learn of the positive anti-doping test result from a sample provided in August. Evans was retained by the Scorchers in the inaugural BBL draft. More news at one. Helene, thank you for that update. 24 to 1. I'm Bevan Eats from Manjima, and you're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio WA. More of your ideas coming in on the text 0448922604. How should some of this money in this $750 million community investment fund be spent? All contributions to this fund are coming from the state's mining companies. At the moment, it's at $750 million, but it is on the way up, according to the Premier. So where should it be spent? This just in on the text, the mine money, why isn't it spent on something they don't spend money on, like rural hospitals and schools, and allow us in the country to have the same level of health and education services the cities enjoy? And this from Rob, 
certainly help fund the grain supply chain, but putting it into Tier 3 rail would be like weighing it up against the wall. Not quite Rob's words, but we had to tweak it a little bit. 0448-922-604. Between now and the news at one, it's going to be off to Mushay for the results of the sheep market and also looking at the possibility of growing jackfruit in the Ord Valley. Right now, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Luke Huntington is here today. And Luke, there's a few thunderstorms, some, some wind about... And it's in various parts of the state, in the Southwest Land Division and parts of the North too. Can you take us for a look first around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, that's right, uh, Belinda. So um, it's all uh, caused by deep trough just off the west coast there. Um, so it's becoming active um, with some showers and storms um, throughout most parts of the Southwest Land Division, but probably more for the for the western areas. Um, and we are seeing a couple of thunderstorms uh, develop down the trough at the moment. Um, it looks like there's a pretty decent uh, little thunderstorm cell just south of Dan Derrigan in the inland central west at the moment. So it looks pretty decent on the radar at the moment. So you could get some strong and gusty wind. Um, with some storms uh, today, but it looks like rainfall, um, probably not too much um, with storms, maybe five millimetres at the best if you do get under a storm, just because they're moving uh, uh, pretty quickly at the moment. Um, but yeah, uh, we're seeing those storms um, continuing throughout this afternoon and uh, evening, and then uh, throughout the sort of the remainder of the um, so sort of the south, it's pretty pretty clear through uh, the southern parts of the state, sort of near the south coast there. So they're probably sort of less likely to get any storms uh, today. But um, looks like heading into tomorrow, the trough does start to move inland. So uh, it looks like the, the storms will continue during the overnight period and then through the day tomorrow. So there's more of a chance of getting a storm down uh, to that southwest corner and along the south coast during tomorrow. But at the same time, with the trough moving inland, they will clear away from the west coast uh, in the early morning and be confined to more of through the through the wheat belt, Great Southern and the South Coastal area uh, during the daytime, uh, maybe getting into the Esperance uh, region during the, during the afternoon as well. But again, the storms tomorrow are going to be pretty fast moving, so we're not expecting too much rainfall uh, with those storms, uh, maybe one to two millimetres, uh, maybe up to around five millimetres uh, at the most. So with the lack of rainfall as well, there's also a risk of sort of dry lightning around. So if that does happen um, with little rainfall, there is a risk of um, sort of that lightning igniting, uh, causing fires around the place. So that's a, that's a concern uh, in, into the Southwest Land Division over the coming 24 hours. But um, as I said, the, the trough does start to move uh, eastwards during tomorrow. So by Thursday, uh, the trough will be through the gold fields and away from the Southwest Land Division. So it's really just t uh, today and tomorrow with the risk of thunderstorms. And then we see a, sort of a little weak cold front uh, move up to the southwest corner um, on Friday. Um, so we could see some light showers or drizzle, uh, mainly through the lower west, southwest and the south coastal districts, um, but being sort of the drizzly type of showers, there wouldn't be too much rainfall associated with that sort of the one to two millimetre range. Um, and then into Saturday, we do see uh, a new ridge developing to the south. So we might see some light showers just along that south coast and the onshore flow, but not uh, too much around. And um, so it should say the temperatures are pretty warm at the moment with that trough off the west coast. We are seeing temperatures in the uh, sort of the low to mid 30s um, through 
lot part a lot of part of the southwest land division apart from the south coast where the temperatures are in the low 20s at the moment but with the trough moving through inland parts tomorrow it will be cooler on the west coast but remaining into the low 30s through the inland parts and moving into northern and eastern parts there's certainly been some rain about in in the kimberley in particular is that set to continue yeah, it has been. So um, we've just had a good moisture feed coming in from the northwest there. There's a there's a tropical low just off the uh, the Pilbara coast at the moment, but it's a very weak system. It's not expected to develop into a cyclone, but it's it's definitely feeding moisture through the Kimberley at the moment. And uh, we have seen those sort of widespread falls, 20 to 50 millimetres, and even some parts in the last couple of days have got up to around 100 millimetres. So I don't think we're going to get quite as much as that, sort of the 100 millimetres, but definitely close to it. Um, isolated places could see um, up to around 80 millimetres with widespread falls, 20 to 40 millimetres. And that continues uh, into tomorrow as well. Um, there's still a lot of moisture around and thunderstorms are relatively slow moving through that area. So um, heavy falls are, are on the cards again for, uh, for today and tomorrow. So uh, there is a risk of, if we do see those falls, of issuing a severe thunderstorm warning with heavy rainfall. Um, by the time we get to Thursday, we'll probably still see some heavy falls around the place but probably gradually uh, easing just as the sort of the low weakens off off the Pilbara coast and the moisture lessens and then definitely by Friday uh, we'll see um, probably less likely to get heavier falls and if you do get some they'll be more very much isolated compared to the last couple of days Um, and in terms of rainfall elsewhere uh, we will see thunderstorms through the eastern Pilbara over the next few days as well into the interior and um, as the trough moves east on, on the Wednesday period, that extends, the, th- the thunderstorm risk goes right through the Goldfields region into the western Eucla. And then on the Thursday period, uh, the trough moves a little bit further east. So we'll see the thunderstorms into the eastern Gascoigne, eastern Goldfields and the Eucla. The most active day for the Eucla and eastern Goldfields is probably the, on the Friday, just as that, dr- as that trough drags moisture down from the north. So there is potential of moderate to heavy falls right through the interior into the eastern Goldfields, Eucla on that Friday period. Um, so that's probably the main day where we'll see the most thunderstorm activity for the eastern parts of the state there. And then into Saturday, the trough does clear east of the state. So any sort of showers or thunderstorms will be confined to the Kimberley and uh, to the interior region. And with all that going on, Luke, are there warnings this afternoon? Uh, yeah, there is just a um, fire weather warning uh, for inland parts of the central west, uh, the midwest coast and the Mortlock fire weather districts. So just due to those hot and windy conditions through that area. And we also have a strong wind warning for the Esperance coast tomorrow. There's no thunderstorm warnings out for today, but we can't rule out um, issuing some later this afternoon. Thank you so much, Luke. Appreciate that. It is 17 to 1 and Richard Hudson just making his way into the studio now to go through those rainfall figures for you. Yeah, and again, the bulk of them are in the Kimberley, of course. Uh, so Bedford Downs Airstrip, 26 mils. Country Downs, 20. Curtin Airport, 9. Dampier Downs Airstrip, 19. Derby had between 46 and 48. Diggers Rest, 7. Doongan, 11. Flora Valley, 17. Gibb River, 22. Halls Creek, 5. Kachana, 26. Columbaroo, 16. Kununurra at the airport, 30 mils, and at the checkpoint, 17. Lake Argyle Resort, 35. Lansdowne, 35 as well. Lombardina, 8. Margaret River Airstrip, 10. Marion Downs, 16. Mullabulla Airstrip, 20. Mount Amherst, 30. Mount Barnett, 
10, Mount Krauss 24, Mount Winifred 29, Maruda had 24, uh, Napier Downs 35, Nicholson, Old Mornington Homestead and Sturt Creek all had 15, Siddons Creek 19, Theta 14, Troughton Island 7, Truscott 33, Udiala 24, Warman 40, Wyndham 10 and Yulumbu 43. It sounds like just about everywhere got some rain in the Kimberley. In the Pilbara, not so much. Marble Bar got seven, but that's about it. And nothing recorded elsewhere, except for a few latecomers in the Southwest Land Division. So in the lower west, Carnot had seven mils over six days. And then in the southern coastal region, Ongarup had six mils over four days. But there certainly has been some decent rain late in the season, into the spring season. The grain harvest is now well and truly underway, but for some people that late rain has meant some paddocks uh, have been surprisingly wet. So people are out there with the header and then suddenly things can sort of change. That's exactly what happened to Jake Cole. He farms at Narrambeen, about 280 kilometres east of Perth. On the weekend he was harvesting and then suddenly he was stuck. Just harvesting around a dam which normally isn't too bad and I sort of took a little bit wide around the dam because I thought it might be soft but apparently it didn't take it wide enough and I ended up bogged. Were you expecting something like that to happen? I've seen a few people around the place having dramas. I've done most of the bad spots around this farm that I thought I might come unstuck in and um, yeah, this one snuck up on me. Out Narrambeen way, is this an issue that you commonly face with? No. No, not at all. Probably a little bit more so now if we do get that later rain or summer rain on country that people go deep ripping in and stuff like that, I, I guess it could be an issue. But no, I've been on the farm for almost a decade now and I've never had this drama. So it's a bit of a different sort of challenge for you this year? Yeah, it's, um, it's normally might be a sprayer or something if you're a little unlucky, but it's um, normally not wet enough for uh, that kind of carry on. But uh yeah, no, especially not in the harvester anyway. Yeah, so did you have enough rain to get bogged like that? Uh, yeah, I think it's more just the spots that have been laying around and built up from the six inches we probably had through August and September and then a few top-up rains throughout um, the start of harvest, which have been a bit annoying. I think it's just kept those patches a little bit damp. What effect did the bogging have on the crops, the machinery? Yeah, well, very muddy. I normally don't have a muddy header, but yeah, it's yeah, it's more of a pain more than anything. It actually wasn't as bad as I thought it would be to pull it out. We did it with a front wheel assist. Yeah, it was a little bit trickier because I do have a seed destructor on the back of the harvester, so it was a little bit restrictive in which way I could pull the header. So it was forward. Do you think you might get bogged again? I really hope not. No, I, th- I think um, most of the country that I've done would be the riskier stuff. So I think from here on in, uh, fingers crossed, I'm past any danger of that. How has the weather been the last week? Well, last three weeks has been very stop-start with harvest, um, trying to get a bit of a run at it. And, uh, yeah, we're just getting small thunderstorms coming through and stuff that's sort of coming out from the south as well, which we don't tend to get in Narrambeen or that far north, but uh, it's been an unusual weather pattern considering we're almost into summer. Yeah, is it still cold there? Uh, yeah, starting to warm up this week by the looks of it, and then by the weekend again it looks like we could drop back down to the low 20s, but uh, a couple of warm days in the 30s this week will um, give us a bit of a run at it. So how do you feel about harvest overall? 
Uh, yeah, no, it's positive at the moment. I'd like to be having a bit more of a run at it and getting it off a little quicker, but the weather's sort of restricted that a little bit. But uh, no, it's, it's positive at the moment. I'm still on canola and that's probably about where I thought. And the few people around this area that have started and starting to push into cereals with barley and wheat, are, um, I'm hearing pretty positive reports. So yeah, hopefully it's like that across the board. Awesome. And how are the crops looking when they come off? Yeah, good. Yeah, I put a little extra canola in this year, so it's becoming a little bit tedious, as everyone else would be feeling as well, because it is slow to harvest, but it's worth a bit of money at the moment, especially if you forward sold a little bit. But um, now they're coming off good. We got reasonable oil, and um, yeah, yields are about what I expected. Narrabeen farmer Jake Cole with Sophie Johnson, eleven to one. Heading to the north of the state now because Western Australia's Ord Valley is really well known for its high-quality mangoes, bananas and watermelon. But jackfruit could be the next big thing. And I mean that in both senses of the word. The tropical fruit, it weighs up to about 20 kilos and it's being trialled in Kununurra and Carnarvon. But there are only a few farmers that are growing it commercially here in WA. Kununurra farmers Beck and Luke McMullen are giving it a go and say while growing the world's largest fruit tree comes with its challenges, they're optimistic about the future. We've only got a handful of trees really, but we've pulled a fair quantity off and we've been able to send to market. The quality has been beautiful and the appetite for it in market has been really healthy as well. So overall we're really happy with the way that the season's gone. Yeah, so there's certainly challenges growing jackfruit and, you know, certain varieties of jackfruit. It's quite an art form to, to figure out when they're right because it's all anecdotal and it's, um, you know, some people say it's when the last leaf turns yellow. Some people say it's when you can hear a different sound in the fruit when you tap it. Some people say it's when the, the spikes flatten out, but so far we have not figured out either method is better than the other and... Um, you know, you'll get a really spiky fruit and you'll open it up and it's perfectly ripe or, um, you know, the, that last leaf has turned yellow and it's a really unripe fruit. So it's, it's very much an art form and um, a lot of learning. We're planting trees that are healthy in the sapling stage and they're just not making it into a full mature tree. And we're finding it hard to get the seeds and saplings going. It's a very temperamental tree. It's very um, affected by a lot of climatic and environmental factors. And if those seem to happen at the wrong stage of its growth, then the tree just will fail. So from planting in the ground to being able to pull fruit off it, it's a very much a long-term tree to grow in your orchard. It'd be a safe bet that you wouldn't be doing much with it within your first five years uh, if it survives that five years. Our main trees have been around for um, close to a couple of decades now. Where are your markets for jackfruit? Who are the consumers that are seeking these fruit? So all of our fruit goes to Perth, so it goes straight through the Canning Vale markets. We've got an amazing fruit agent down there. He will on-sell all of our fruit. The feedback that we've got from him is that there's a, a keen market just around Perth. What's it used for? It is, as you've just tried some, uh, it's a really unique fruit. So it's used in lots of different recipes, predominantly from the Asian um, Indian type continents that have um, been cooking with it for, for generations and it goes beautifully in their dishes. And we've also seen a trend with it um, being as a meat alternative type dish where you can still get the sort of same feeling as having a meat, but by using the jackfruit instead. And have you tried any of that? And if you have, what are your thoughts? 
I have been tricked. Yeah, I have been tricked. I thought I was having some pork belly, which turned out was not pork belly. And it wasn't until I was told that I really realised it was a, a pretty clever way of cooking it that, um, yeah, that disguised it nicely. So with that growing market in health food or vegan alternatives or substitutes to meat, what's your outlook for jackfruit and demand for it moving forward? I say it being really healthy. Obviously a consistent demand as it is, but so many people just don't know about the fruit. We took a consignment to our uh, transport company and the driver, as he was loading on the truck, scratching his head going, what's this fruit? What is that? It's a pretty um, awesome looking piece of fruit when you see it, but um, people just don't know what it looks like, what it is, how it even tastes. So I'm confident that it could be a popular fruit and there could be an increased demand for it as people sort of maybe try incorporate it more in their cooking or their, um, their shopping lists. And so it's a fruit that you're looking at expanding on this property, investing more in? I reckon it's a great fruit and yeah, I'd love for us to have more of it. Primarily though, um, you know, uh, orchard is a mango orchard. So it's a, a balancing act of incorporating this tree sort of into the orchard and then also the irrigation and the fertiliser and chemical treatment scheme and stuff like that as well, making sure that they're all sort of in harmony with each other. But we do have the opportunity that we can possibly grow it in there more uh, and we're certainly exploring that and um, we, we're trying to make it happen. Luke and Beck McMullen speaking to Steph Sinclair about the jackfruit that's growing on their Kununurra farm this year and their outlook for the fruit in the Ord. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development is hosting a perennial crop field walk at its research station in Kununurra on December 12, where you can hear all about how its jackfruit trials are going in the Ord and just get in touch with the team there if you'd like to head along to that. Six minutes to one. Well, here is a story to inspire you to have a really good look through the sheds at your place for some lost treasure. An old furfy water cart and tank that's been sitting in a paddock at Beechworth, northeast of Victoria for decades now, has sold at a clearing sale for a record $61,300. Furfy water carts have in recent years become collector's items. The horse-drawn water carriers were made in Shepparton and they were a common sight on farms from sort of around the late 1800s. Clearing sale manager from Kevin Hicks Real Estate, Chelsea McKay, says she was shocked at the final price. We spoke to a couple of uh, local collectors who all said, oh no, that'll be very, very sought after. Within the first 24 hours, it jumped from 15 to 25. So we went, okay, people are keen. Then over the course of the week, it went to 35, 36, I think it was, on the morning of the last day. And then the last half hour just went crazy. So final price was $61,300 for a furphy water cart. What can you tell us about the water cart itself? The water cart was uh, the the transport was on was had seen better days, but the tank itself was old. You know, you could see that it had been sitting out in the paddock for quite some time. It had a bit of moss and that sort of thing growing on it. The tank isn't necessarily the draw cart. It was the pump, the surfy pump on the front, the main draw cart. Because apparently, oh, so we've been told they're very very rare. What went through your mind when you saw the final price <laughs> jump up in that last <laughs> little bit? Collectors are crazy. <laughs> yeah, I was just, just astounded. Like I, I knew that it was going to make good money, but yeah, that just sort of blew us all out of the water. 
you had previously sold um, Furfies before at clearing sales. What, what were you usually getting before then or what was sort of the highest price that you saw? Furfies tanks always sell well. Um, there's a lot of variance in them depending on what sort of end it is. We did sell one in Echuca Village um, a number of years ago for record at the time. That was $26,000. That was a, a big price at the time. A standard tank can, you know, an end can sell from anywhere from 800 to 1500 just on its own. The taps, the handles, they always sell for a couple hundred dollars each. So Furfy's becoming more and more collectible every year, but yeah still nothing prepared us for this one. Clearing sale manager from Kevin Hicks Real Estate, Chelsea McKay with Annie Brown. And the new owner is Victorian, but uh, wanted to remain anonymous. The story, all the details uh, about the purchase of it and the sale, all online for you now. Just search Furfy Record ABC to look through Annie's story. Three minutes to one. To the markets now and heading to Muche for the results of today's sheep and lamb sale. Terry Birkin, hello. How are the numbers today? Hi, Belinda. Numbers are up slightly this week with 2,457 sheep and 2,495 lambs for a total of 4,952 head. A short supply of finished lambs were on offer today with most lambs in store condition. Heavy mutton was prominent along with some good weathers but very few rams and ram lambs. Most regular buyers were present today, with feeder buyers keen to purchase and restockers active on both store lambs and provide a good competition for merino use for the paddock. Store lambs made from $10 to $82 and light lambs were selling from $69 to $108 a head. Trade lambs returned $90 to $145 and heavy lambs sold up to $168 a head. The few store ram lambs presented made from $17 to $74. Prime Merino Weather Hoggets were making $85 to $138 with 50mm of wool, while Merino U Hoggets returned $50 to $126, also with the fleece. Prime Crossbred Hoggets sold from $75 to $110, and Younger Rams were selling to $80. Boney Ewes made from $40 to $72, Medium Ewes were selling up to $106, and Heavy Ewes returned $95 to $115 a head. This has been Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you very much, Terry. Taking you back to the cricket shortly. First, though, the state government has firmed up plans for an on-country rehabilitation facility on a Kimberley cattle station. Now, you might remember back in May, $15 million was set aside for the facility to help address youth crime problems in the north. Well, today, Regional Development Minister Alana McTiernan is announcing that Malamanu will deliver the project at Morida Station, about 100 kilometres southeast of Derby. There'll be capacity for 16 juvenile offenders to learn how to manage cattle on the property. It's been touted as an alternative to the controversial Bankshire Hill Detention Centre. The program was initially slated to be finalised by early next year, but it won't be operational until the second half of 2023 at the earliest. Now, heading to Melbourne for the third one-day international cricket game between Australia and England. Australia batting first and is none for 112 off 19 overs. There's a bit of rain about. It's interrupted play, and right now the covers are on and there is no play. Travis Head, 65. David Warner, 42. You're off to the MCG.